space calling. You're listening to Wild Weasel, a podcast about wargaming news, wargaming ideas, and wargaming people. I'm Bruce Garrick, your host and electronic warfare technician. Welcome to Wild Weasel number 16. Or, if you've listened before, then welcome back! I finally decided it was time to record a new episode after Rally in the Valley beat me to posting again. But really, I finally got some free time that I wasn't spending playing games, or working. Because that's what this is all about, right? I had a nice wargaming vacation in the middle of September. My friend Don came over for a four-day weekend, and we played several games to completion, including War of the Ring, War and Peace, God, I love that game, Empire of the Sun, albeit the South Pacific scenario only, and 21 turns of no retreat the Russian front, which we later finished over live vassal. We went all the way to turn 28 on that one, and it was a great time. We also tried Kevin Zucker's Highway to the Kremlin, but we just didn't have the minds to keep a fifth rule set in our heads, which can be a real problem when you move from game to game to game in such a short period of time. This was the same problem I had to a lesser extent with Rob Zachney, who came to visit in July, and with whom I played several games about World War I, including Paths of Glory, The Lamps Are Going Out, and Fields of Despair. We recorded a podcast for three moves ahead about this, which you can listen to via the link on this Wild Weasel podcast page. Rob and I also played Cataclysm in its three-player incarnation, and I recruited my friend Evan for an entire Saturday of Second World War European Theater. Rob and I had some thoughts on that as well. That's also at three moves ahead. I also had my friend Jeremy over, and we playtested a game that I can't really tell you about right now, plus some Cataclysm two-player. I also got the chance to play Skies Above the Reich, which is a solo game, and for which I wrote up an after-action report, which you can find on Inside GMT. I also played five games of Hitler's Reich, which I'll discuss later in the podcast. And I've also had some wonderful times playing Empire of the Sun via live vassal against my friends Tom, Pat, and even against Mark Herman. This is a game that solves so many of the problems in simulating the Pacific theater that it's hard for me to look at Pacific games the same way again. And I played all of them, including Pacific War, USN, and War in the Pacific. Empire of the Rising Sun, I've played that too. Every single one of them. But by no means is Empire of the Sun a perfect game. Like any game, it makes certain compromises. In this case, with a high variability combat system that can sometimes really make you feel like you've just been diced. I think Mark rolled two consecutive zeros when invading the Dutch East Indies, while Pat rolled something like three consecutive ones. And those were rolls that happened when it really counted. But a good designer, and I'd argue that Mark is one of the few truly great ones, knows how to decide when a compromise is really thematic, and when it will feel appropriate. There's so much luck in naval combat that it would be silly to devise a combat system simply on weight of metal, witness last stand of the tin can sailors, and that the swingy die rolls give the game its essential flavor. So, call it a compromise well chosen. And for those people who are afraid this is turning into some kind of Mark Herman worship fest, let me take this opportunity to state that I don't really like Fort Sumter. That was more of a Missouri compromise. Okay? See? Fair and balanced. I also played Root recently, which someone described as the best Vietnam War game they have ever played. 
My vote in that category would actually be GDW's Blood Tree Rebellion by Lynn Willis. Although to be fair, Nick Carp's Vietnam is certainly the best Vietnam War game I'll never finish. The next game I'm hoping to get to the physical table is OCS Smolensk, and Don and I are working on starting The Dark Valley on Vassal. I mean, I think I've convinced him, that is. So, I've gotten a lot of good gaming in. Now that I've had some time to scour the news sources for some wargaming information, we have a new Wild Weasel. I have a guest whose first interview got lost in my digital file management system, so I'm glad to have him back for a redo. But first, the news. It has, once again, been a long time since the last news roundup. So some very interesting things have happened, on which I'll comment as we go along. First of all, I understand that ASL Winter Offensive is the release window for MMP's massive historical ASL package, Red Factories. The retail price is $164, but the pre-order discount is $41, bringing it down to a very reasonable $123 if you get your order in before it ships. I love the fact that a game this big got almost 1,900 pre-orders. For the things I mentioned last time, this is the one I've been thinking about the most, and the one I absolutely can't wait to play. I remember some great days back in 1991 playing Red Barricades, and now two factories? The mind boggles. But then it picks itself up, brushes off its coat, and starts playing historical ASL. There's also a new product on MMP's list called A Victory Awaits by Japanese designer Tetsuya Nakamura, who I know mostly as the designer of the excellent Fire in the Sky about the Pacific War. This uses a system he devised for A Victory Lost, which was about the campaign in the Ukraine in 1942-43, you know, backhand blow kind of thing. Um, but this one simulates Operation Barbarossa, but only until mid-September. Yes, because you know what happened then. Barbarossa derailed. Oh yeah. You guys all on board with that glance stuff? You believe it? I guess Tetsuya does. Anyway, it's division level with weak long turns. Ten of them, from June 22nd through whatever is ten weeks after that. Technically, that is Operation Barbarossa. The attack on Moscow is Typhoon. But how many people are going to be satisfied stopping at Smolensk? Now, it hasn't met its 550-unit goal yet. Maybe that's why. Oh, but Front Toward Enemy, about tactical firefights in Vietnam? That has met its pre-order goal. Hopefully, we'll see that soon. Uh, MMP is also getting ready for their sale. Uh, so keep watching their webpage at multimanpublishing.com or follow their Twitter at, at multimanpub, and you'll get the details there. You shouldn't miss that one. Now, Compass Games has been on a tear recently, announcing over a dozen new games, as well as moving into the place of most prolific republisher of old games. So I'm not going to list every single game that Compass has announced. You can go to their website for that, but I wanted to highlight some of the ones I think are of particular interest. So first of all, there's an original design on the pre-order page for $64 called The Conquistadors. It's a two-to-five player game about the conquest of Central and South America in the 16th century, with a special solitaire mode also included. Uh, I'm very interested in this period, and it would be nice to have something to replace the old SBI Avalon Hill Conquistador, since uh, that one proves itself to be eventually unplayable if you go long enough. It just becomes so unwieldy. Um, but the sole reason this is first on my list of interesting Compass games is that the designer is John Southard. Now, John designed two of the best solitaire games ever published, and I don't say that lightly. Uh, both were for Victory Games, and they were called Tokyo Express and then Carrier. Um, he also did Fireteam, which is very good. That was for West End, also Chickamauga for West End, some others, but um, he's fantastic. So if John Southard is designing a game, it's on my committed pre-buy list until I'm proven wrong. 
So John, don't prove me wrong, and everybody else uh, keep an eye out for it. Okay, so we're still in the uh, Compass games, but now in the reprints category. Compass is doing two games that might be called best in class for their respective subjects. Now, one is Joe Belkowski's Korean War, and the other is Frank Chadwick's Third World War series. I'll get to that in a second. If you're interested in either of these subjects, I would say that these are the essential games for these subjects uh, for a war gamer to own. Korean War, I think, is the best game about that conflict by about 1.6 kilometers. Furthermore, the reprint of Third World War will not just be Battle for Germany, but all four games in that series, which are Battle for Germany, Southern Front, Arctic Front, and Persian Gulf. Those GDW games names were so prosaic. Um, at the proposed price of $135 for the pre-order for the four games in the Third World War series, that's just a steal. I can't imagine anyone not buying that if you are interested in the subject. Um, now, a real eyebrow raiser for me was a recent announcement that Compass will also be reprinting Danny Parker's Hitler's Last Gamble, which is that infamous 3W production with the 20 pages of errata. Now, Danny Parker is famously the Bulge designer. I mean, he knows a lot about the Bulge. He designed several Bulge games. Um, I remember when this came out, this was in, I think, the late 80s. Um, actually, I have it right here, 1989. Now, I remember this being a good system, but I don't think we ever uh, completely adjusted it, my uh, opponents and I, probably because of the 20 pages of errata. Now, I'd be interested in a version that presents this game as it was originally intended, but here's the problem. That addressing the game needs to be not only um, fixing the old wrinkles, but any new wrinkles that pop up from addressing the old ones. Right? You fix part of the game, breaks other parts. You have to make sure the whole thing works. So that means you can't just incorporate the existing errata. You need to play test and adjust the new game that's created through the purported fixes. Now, a lot of errata in the old days was people desperately trying to answer individual player questions on a case-by-case -case basis and hoping it didn't create new contradictions, which it always did. So why am I concerned about Compass's ability to get this right? Because they still haven't ironed out the problems with the rules in Korea Fire and Ice. So just to be clear, this game shipped in April, and the rulebook was a mess. And there's a three-page thread of errata, clarifications, and explanations on BoardGameGeek, more discussion on Consum World, no updated rules yet. Last post in that thread is July 9th. I hear the designer is now working on a Vietnam game in the same system. I wish Compass Games would fix their existing games before they start new ones. Now, Compass actually has about a million newer reprint games listed, so just go over to their compassgames.com website and see for yourself. The catalog I got just has so much stuff that you can miss things, like, um, for example, Masahiro Yamazaki's For the Motherland, which is about what you think it's about, or the reprint edition of Fortress Europa. Fortunately, that one shouldn't have much errata. Over at Clash of Arms Games, David Doctor's massively revised and updated Triumph of Chaos is almost ready for sale. This is about the Russian Civil War, by the way. Um, I was actually on Skype video with Mark Herman the other day. Uh, I was losing badly to him at Empire of the Sun, and David was over at Mark's place ogling the new Triumph of Chaos maps that had apparently just arrived by mail. Um, this one is $96 pre-order, $120 post-publication. That doesn't include shipping, by the way. It does not. Triumph of Chaos is one of those games where the title of the game equally well describes both the historical subject and the experience of playing the game. And I recommend the original, and hopefully we will say the same thing about version 2 when it arrives. You should go to ClashOfArms.com or just click on the helpful link on the podcast page. So reprints, reprints, and more reprints. Decision Games is reprinting Imperium Romanum by Al Nofi. Now, I really enjoyed that game a long time ago. Um, I still have the West End version that was ultimately unplayable because of the errata, but I, I don't know, We maybe we weren't smart enough to figure that out. We kind of just 
bodged our way through that whole thing. We really liked that system. Um, it just completely was broken, though. Um, Uh-oh, that means errata. Well, I think some of that was addressed in Imperium Romanum too. But uh, this is being discussed on the Constant World Forum, so you can get your questions answered there. Uh, the price is $100 pre-order, $140 retail. Now, Advento Nuovo Games, their block game, Moscow 41, is on sale. That's for 60 euros rather than the usual 95 euros, but only until November 4th. Stalingrad Inferno is another block game. I think Vento Nuovo only has blocks, um, which purports to play in one to two hours. That's Stalingrad in one to two hours, folks. It also has a German player versus the AI mode. It's built as an actual AI, not like some kind of, you know, kludgy bot. Now, this was funded via Kickstarter. It was released in August, and some copies are still left at 90 euros each. Uh, there are also some add-ons because, you know, Kickstarter loves those, like a mounted map, a collector's edition map. You know, you can just go to town and double the price of the game if you want by adding all this add-on stuff. But uh, that's at ventonuovo.net, and just click on the link on the podcast page if you don't know how to spell that. Now, Victory Point Games is on the verge of shipping Thunder in the East, which is Frank Chadwick's opening salvo in the European Theater of Operations series to Kickstarter backers. When I say on the verge, they now have a firm shipping date, which is uh, anytime in January 2019, basically. Now, apparently the games are on the boat, the boat is on the water, and the laws of physics take over from there. Uh, they're already working on the second game in the series, by the way. That's called The Middle Sea. That, however, hasn't seen a Kickstarter yet, and I, I can't imagine them doing that before they ship the first game. So I'll let you know what the game looks like when I get it. I hope to play that one. I really like uh, Frank Shadwick's designs. So GMT, yeah, GMT's had its yearly sale for the first time in three years. And yes, you knew all about it, and you all bought games or something, so you can't complain they didn't hear about it from me. You heard about it from everybody on the Internet. Um it was a pretty chaotic sale, to be sure, because instead of the old system where you could order one game at half price for each P500 game you'd purchased over the past year, GMT just opened it up to anyone and everyone. That's right. All in-stock games, that means no P500 titles, were half off. So the servers promptly crashed about five times, and many people couldn't even get in for the first six to eight hours. Now, eventually, things lightened up, and then the servers crashed again. I managed to get my order in on the evening of the second day, and I'm still waiting on it, although many others have received their games, so I'm hoping mine are somewhere in the pipeline. Um, so my only comment on the sale is that while I love the ability to buy GMT games at half off, I think the idea of an open annual sale creates some problems. Namely, I was already having a hard time justifying any direct purchase from GMT that was not a P500, since those games are available elsewhere for cheaper. But as long as I could get a nice discount from GNT for P500 games, I was fine ordering from them directly and taking my chances. But now, uh, I can't see any reason to pay even P500 pricing for games released early in the year if I'm going to be able to just wait and get them half off in six months. Sure, they may be out of stock, but then I can probably pick them up from, say, Miniature Market for close to the P500 price once you include the significant shipping difference between them and GMT. Now, I'm wondering if the annual sale expectation is going to create a steam-like atmosphere where most people just put off buying stuff, they put it on their wait lists, and hold out for the inevitable sale. Um, of course, on Steam, there's no shortage since they're all digital products. Um, so I don't know how that's going to work out. I honestly am not sure where this ends up. Um, from GMT's perspective, they may want to unload a ton of inventory in the fall at half price since it presumably is still profitable for them. I'm not saying that they shouldn't run the numbers and see what works best for them from a business standpoint and then do it. I'm just pointing out that from my purely consumer view, it creates some new dilemmas. I may be buying a lot more by mail from the Gamers Armory. So what about new P500s? 
actually for once, there aren't any new ones that I'm interested in. I think I mentioned the new edition of Mark Herman's Peloponnesian War last time. Uh, Atlantic Chase, Czech, Versailles, yeah, those are all mentioned last time. People Power, the coin game about the Philippines. Hmm, that's a new one by Kenneth T., not about the war for independence, interestingly. It's about the Marcos era from 1983 to 86. Hmm, okay, that's on my list. Uh, there's a Capture the Flag-style fantasy-themed game called Mystery Wizard. I'll pass on that. Oh, and Commands and Colors Samurai Battles. I might order this since I was unable to get Command and Colors Ancients from the GMT sale since it's out of stock. How about the digital version from Hexward that was released recently on Steam? Uh, it's terrible. I bought it and refunded it in 30 minutes. I think the lesson is that Hexward is not a great partner for GMT's digital titles. If you want a good digital game using that system, try Battle or Command from Fantasy Flight. And I, I don't mean because of the graphics. I just mean because it actually implements the rules correctly, has an understandable interface, you know, the things a digital game needs to succeed. Speaking of GMT's digital games, I have higher hopes for their big summer announcement. Labyrinth is coming to digital. The reason I'm more optimistic here is that this is being done by Playdeck, who did the superlative port of Twilight Struggle. Uh, Playtesting for that game, I'm told, is currently in progress. Oh, there is one other GMT P500 that I might get, which is the new Next War game, uh, which is uh, Vietnam, Next War Vietnam. Although I'm a little saturated with hypothetical future conflicts right now, so I may not. If GMT is so keen on continuing a series, why not more battles in Vietnam using the Silver Bayonet system, huh? It's just a thought. Hollandspiele has been a bit quiet since my last update. Uh, as everything on the front page looks like something I mentioned as being at least in progress in The Last Wild Weasel, with the exception of Meltwater, subtitled A Game of Tactical Starvation. Hmm. Uh, what it looks like is a semi-deterministic game about trying to survive on an irradiate North uh, irradiated North American continent while being attacked by Ruskies. Uh, unless you're the Ruskies. Then you're being attacked by Yankees. It's not really a military simulation of anything. It seems fairly abstract, but something about the gameplay seems like it has a hook to it. It's kind of interesting. I'll have a look to that on the podcast page. So from a more traditional Wargamer standpoint, uh, the game that Wargamers might be interested in from Hollandspiel right now that's available is NATO Air Commander, a game from Brad Smith about allocating your air power after a surprise Warsaw Pact attack in 1987. This is one I'm going to get eventually, but honestly, I don't have time for any more solitaire games at the moment. Uh, the great thing about Hollenspiel is that their games are print-on-demand, so I can expect it to still be there when I want it. Well, I want it now, but I'll demand it later. Now, Kevin Zucker's Operational Studies Group, or OSG, has a new pre-order, which is Napoleon Retreats, subtitled Campaign in France 2, sub-subtitled Winter 1814, Hope Against Hope. Yep, that's what it's called. Uh, $76 is a pre-order. Um, it's a... Uh, three battle game and while i think the three battles themselves are not the most historically interesting uh, the maps all do link up to offer a week-long campaign game which i think is unique for this series well except for maybe napoleon's last gamble speaking of which there is also an expansion of this called the road to Halle, which expands the map to the west and allows for more maneuver room that way and you can pre-order that one as well just go to www.napoleongames.com Let's see, Longstreet Attacks from Revolution Games is shipping now. Maori Wars from Legion War Games is shipping now. Oh, and playtesting for the second edition of my personal favorite war game ever, Tien Fu, The Final Gamble, is in progress. You should pre-order that. You won't be sorry. Even if you have it, just pre-order it. Um, let's see, one small step has taken to posting joke titles like NATO Goes Nuts on its pre-order page with no details or anything. 
I should just start tweeting out games with fake titles and art and see how many people believe me. Or just naming made-up games on this podcast. Uh, one game that is not made up is Jack Green's Bear Flag Republic. Uh, that's available for pre-order at One Small Step, and I think you should. OSSGamesCart.com. Mark Walker's Flying Pig has the old-school tactical Stalingrad expansion reprint on pre-order for $40. Uh, there's this ongoing battle in my head which tactical system I like better, or maybe dislike less, between Band of Brothers and Old School Tactical. Um, Old School Tactical makes me feel like I'm playing a watered-down ASL, while Band of Brothers makes me feel like I'm playing a watered-down Conflict of Heroes. Maybe I should just start playing ASL again. Red Factories. The starter kit number one, by the way, is coming out soon, huh? Again? Yeah? Restock? Oh, what a vortex that is. Seeing Rally in the Valley post screenshots of unconfirmed kill tigers really wants to make me get out my Plano boxes. Okay. Next. Stop thinking about that. Okay. White Dog Games, who use the same Blue Panther print-on-demand fulfillment model that Hollenspiel it does, has two interesting new-looking games, um, both of which are solitaire. One is Line of Khartoum, Gordon's Last Stand, which is, of course, about Commissioner Gordon and the Siege of Khartoum and later Metropolis. And the second is really interesting and something I talked about with the designer on The Last Wild Weasel. That's Rhodesia, The White Tribe by Arben Madison, about the civil war in Rhodesia ending its independence in 1980 and renaming itself to Zimbabwe. I actually had no idea this was coming out. And when I saw that I, uh, that was out for this news update, I actually stopped typing, ordered it, and then kept typing. So imagine me stepping off the set briefly to smoke or whatever the equivalent of that is or something. Um, and forget the part I said earlier about not having a time for another solitaire game. Anyway, Solitaire, Geopolitical Thriller by Arben Madison, OMG, WTF, LOL. The U.S. domestic folio version, $38, including shipping. Uh, boxed is $47, including shipping. I plan on reporting back on this next time. Over at Europa Simulazioni, The Invasion of Russia, 1812, is back in stock. This is a game designed by Steve Pohl that was either so good or printed in such limited quantities that it sold out shortly after the original set was printed. Now it's back! 36 euros, plus 9 euros shipping, and 5 euros handling, which I'm sure goes towards some kind of Brussels nanny state tax, comes out to an even 50 euros. I know that's how much it was, because that's what was in the order box when I clicked OK. Steve Pohl actually did another game called 1813, Napoleon's Nemesis, about the German War of Liberation, based on the success of the first game, which I accidentally put into my cart and bought with the invasion of Russia. <laughs> C'est la vie! Go to italianwars.net for your copy. By the way, this isn't a war game, but did you know there's a new edition of 1830 coming out from Lookout Spiele? It was announced last year, but apparently made Essen this past week. You should check the Lookout Games page if you want to grab a copy of this classic game in the English edition. I'm told it's available. And that's the news. So, today on Wild Weasel, I have noted wargame designer and independent wargame publisher, Paul Rohrbaugh of High Flying Dice Games. Paul, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, great to be talking with you. So, Paul, um, I've uh, been um, following your games for years. Uh, you and Perry Moore had a, um, I think, uh, long, have been known as the sort of the, the um, pioneers in the field of the desktop publishing uh, war game hobby i think you guys didn't you did you both oh, um, oh, thank you yeah did you guys do both both publish with um uh micro game design group 
Um, no. Well, um, I got started with Micro Game Design Group uh, back in 1998, 20 uh-huh. years ago now. Wow. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, uh, it, pair, uh, I, I came across them via an Internet search. I had um, tried pub- getting published uh, through some conventional routes, um, and, and that didn't turn out. And um, so anyways, I... I um, I came across Kerry Anderson's microgame design group mm-hmm. and he had, you know, was soliciting for for, you know, ideas and projects and so I emailed him and he said, "Sure, let's do something. You know, show me what you got." So I sent him in my first game was Trampling Out the Vintage, the Atlanta campaign. Hmm. And they they published it the following year. Okay. And things just went you know, run from there. He he really I have games and files that you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know dozens and dozens and dozens of games and files and so he just started off and I started off with him um, I, I got involved uh, with Perry through against the odds um, oh that's right uh-huh. and then um, I, I against the odds to, uh, when they they started up Steve posted he was looking for ideas I sent him my game, A Dark and Bloody Ground. He loved it. They published it. And uh, it, right around that time, too, they were they were having some issues with some of their earlier games. The development process was, well, Steve was trying to do it all. And um, so anyways, he, 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 one thing led to another. And Steve asked if I, you know, I, I asked Steve if I would, would be, if he would be interested in me doing some development work. He said, sure. Mm-hmm. So, um and that that's how I met Perry professionally. I I had long admired Perry's work and and had collected a lot of his games um uh over the years before that, but I got to work on his Into a Bear Trap. Ah, yes. Uh, for against the, Eastern against Front. the odds. Mm-hmm. And then um and, and helped and then I took over, you know, fielding questions for his Kesselschlock game that ATO had published mm-hmm. by that point. And then um so we we just we got to meet you know corresponding via email and such and um, and working with his games and then uh, he was starting Firefight Games a, a desktop published venture and he and my, and by that point Microgame Design Group was starting to to um, be closed up and because Carrie had other you know other things to do with his to firefighting job mm-hmm. and uh, we, so we he. He uh, st- Perry started the firefight games, and I started giving him some work and uh, some of my games for him to do, and I would develop some of his. And um, uh, so we did that for a couple of years, and then um, uh, it just got I I had to pull out because I had other projects, and the day job was getting I was putting in you know a lot of hours mm-hmm. on my regular job. Yep. So, um, but we stayed in touch, and then. Um, I started up high flying dice games uh, as a result of the, you know, the, the recession mm-hmm. uh, in 2008. A lot of companies were scaling back and, or even going out of business. And um, uh, Craig Gando quit, quit as the graphic artist, and if we're against the art, suddenly, and uh, so they. Were looking for more graphic artists, and so Steve sent you some of my games, uh, particularly some of my mini games and those little postcard games mm-hmm. that I did as uh, tools to interview people for 
the graphic arts position. Ah, I see. Okay. And one of the people was Bruce Yeri, and he didn't get the job, but he loved what the games of mine that he was working, he had done. Mm -hmm. So he emailed me and says, would you be interested in, in starting our own company? And I said, sure. <laughs> so okay. That's, that's how High Flying Dice Games got started. Oh, that's interesting. And well, it's, it's, it's taken off. It's fascinating that uh, that those little postcards, so eh, all, all you people that are getting uh, those little postcard games uh, from uh, Against the Odds, um, uh, those are... Those were started as a uh, as a job interview uh, technique for uh, their graphic artist. That's a great little tidbit. Um, yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. So you... it's uh, yeah, they, they they were they're they're fun. Um, I really appreciate of the opportunity that Steve has given me to do those things. Um, it all started with a dare. Um, oh yeah. We were at Origins, and it, it's I, I think it was like nineteen or 2003 or 2002 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, a hurricane, had gone, the remnants of a hurricane had gone through Philadelphia where Steve lives. Mm -hmm. And Clash of Arms is there, and he shares warehouse space with Clash of Arms. Oh. And, um, well, the, the, the hurricane remnants took out the warehouse. Oh. And uh, they, a lot of the product inside was destroyed. Um, amongst them were all of the promotional postcards that Steve had just paid for oh <laughs> and it had, had just had delivered. Mm -hmm. So he needed to have replacements done. And um, we were sitting there, and uh, Ed just jokingly said, I bet Paul couldn't get a game on a postcard. Hmm. And uh, I, said, I bet you I could. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you did. So the. Yeah, I did. So the first one was Stand at Mortain, mm -hmm. and uh, it just kind of grew from there. Yeah, I liked your little uh, little Kampfgruppe Piper uh, little series there. I thought that, and then you could put oh, them yeah, all together. Oh yeah, yeah. Piper Dream. Yeah, yeah. So that's fun. Yeah, uh, we, yeah. We we've got um, that was the um, first, and Steve has a lot of these ideas. He comes and gives me a lot of. Uh, he's the one that comes up with the topics. Mm -hmm. And you know, throws them up and says, "What do you think?" And you know, and I ruminate about it, and I say, "Yeah, I think." I, and he he was the one that pitched the idea of having four games mm -hmm. linked together that you could portray. Yeah, you know what was happening on the northern, you know, part right. of the of the bulge saline there with the, yeah. with the Kampf group of Piper. What's well, a great idea? What the Americans were doing to fight him. Yeah, yeah, it was a great idea, and it worked out real well. And it's, you know, that you can link them together to play this, bit, you know, this campaign game <laughs> with the postcards. <laughs> right. And then we did the same. He came up with the idea for doing Leipzig. Uh -huh. And uh, and we have another one that I, I finished up that's in the works that, that we hopefully will be out um, next year. Okay. Another well, set of four. Is there a or actually five. Can you tease the topic on that, or is that still a secret? Uh yeah I I I, I, I probably said too much. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> but, the... uh, but there are five in this one. Oh, five. Okay. Well, you heard it here first. Yeah, five five coming four. out from so, Paul Robo. Yeah. Okay. So awesome. let the speculation begin. <laughs> okay. Yes. Exactly. Start uh, sending in your guesses to a uh, wild weasel. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So uh, speaking of topics, you know, for games, um, I've noticed that you have, you know, on the High Flying Dice Games website, which by the way, uh, everybody can reach at hfdgames.com. Um, you have. A lot of games about Vietnam, uh, especially some yeah. um, some small games, small uh, relatively well, unknown battles. Uh, is yeah, there a reason uh, for that? Yeah, it, well, yeah. I, I, at first, I, I like to. I, I really very much enjoy the challenge of portraying history in game format, especially mm -hmm. in, on topics that haven't received that treatment 
before or very little treatment before. Okay. Um, I'm also you know, a, a very much um, uh, history, I think, needs to be made personal, at least for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, 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 I very much love his local history. Okay. And um, in, in, in the Vietnam War, you know, I grew up, you know, came of age during that war. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, uh, the, the one of the the person, one of the neighbor, one of the people lived right across the street. The the older brother of the of of the our babysitter, mm-hmm. um, he mm-hmm. he never came back from that. Oh, I see. And mm-hmm. in our high in the high school I went to, there's a um, now there's a, a a wall that you know there's listing all the names of the mm-hmm. of the Fitch graduates that never came back from Vietnam. I so, see. It's it's a topic that's still of compelling interest to me, mm-hmm. and um, but you know so I it's it's uh, it, it's uh, it's something I like I said it 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 it, it doing these games just kind of hit on a number of buttons for me that you know of why I like to do you know this thing called wargaming right. <laughs> and gaming design. Um, so it's uh yeah it's uh, we we do have a fair number and I, I and you know I'll, I, it, most of my games come from reading I, mm-hmm. I'll read be looking doing research and so forth and you know and you know I'll come and say there's a game in here you know, mm-hmm. I could do this yeah and and so I, I you know it's something I like to do yeah and um, well there's time a lot of... has... go, go ahead go ahead no, I there, I think there's enough time that's gone by too that people you know are okay with, uh, or increasingly okay with, you know, exploring this topic in game format, not just in books sure. or DVDs or movies. Well, I think that, um, you know, if you if you actually think about it, you know, the when I was first getting sort of in, involved in the hobby, uh, I guess in the late 70s, uh, that was only 30, you know, just barely over 30 years since the, uh, since the, since World War II had ended. And if mm-hmm. you use the same sort of metric, it's been uh, well over 30 years since the Vietnam War. Is yeah. ended. You know, it's over 40 yeah, it's 40, years. Yeah, 43 years now yeah, since the fall yeah. of Saigon. Right, exactly. Now, of course, there's, those are two different sort of um, two different sort of sets of circumstances because one, uh, it's one, well, one's a much smaller war, one's, uh, you know, much less popular war, and we were on the wrong side of the outcome. So um, I think yeah. that... Well, and that's another reason I like think I think I like doing these games too because I um, we're we're in a midst I think of a, a lot of revisionist history in, uh, regarding the war. I see. And um, and of course you know you know we talk about fake news, mm-hmm. um, but there's also a lot of fake history mm-hmm. too out there. Well, in, 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 in regard for example, to the war. what would you call revisionist history about Vietnam? Oh, that you know, I, I, I there's an increase. Uh, yeah, there's a, uh, uh, oh that we would have won the war if it hadn't been for the politicians. Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't sound like revisionist history. I think that that's a that's a that's an old sort of meme that has been around for a long time. Right. Yeah. Of course. But I think it, it's getting increasing play. Um, and you know, we never lost a battle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that you know we were. I, I, it's 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 um, there's still a lot of controversy with the war. Okay, well, that, that fair hot dove split is still there. Sure, um, and it, it's 
distance is colored our history as well as our memories. Well, I think there's a lot of pushback now. I mean, you see people like uh, uh, Louis Sorley and, and, and Mark Moyar and people who are um, sort of trying to push back against this concept of it being an unjust war, uh, sort of pointing out the uh, the nature of the totalitarian North Korean regime and the, uh, the sort of uh, massacres that took place after the war ended and how, you know, this sort of this this theme that, you know, America was somehow on the wrong side of history. They're, they're, they're pushing against that. They're saying, you know, they were absolutely not yeah. on the wrong side of history. They were the side yeah. of an anti-totalitarian uh, uh, government that unfortunately was not, uh, was not able to compete with the uh, sort of um, country unifying uh, propaganda of communism, but, uh, but perhaps, you know, not because it was an inferior system. Yeah, but uh, the, and but they also ignore that we brutalized that conflict too. We were part of the problem. Um, you know, we we were we were fighting to prop up uh, a very corrupt and despotic uh, regime in the South mm-hmm. that did not have the support of of, of its people, and um, and was was not able to govern. Uh, mm-hmm. Effectively, and if, you know, we even undermined it during the, during the Nixon administration. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you mean so we could get out, coups. but quote unquote honor. Yeah. Well, also, I <laughs> and, think that uh, if you talk about brutalizing the conflict, I think the conflict was brutalized in the fifties, wasn't it, or even before that? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we, yeah, and again, there, again by the, we, by the we allowed the French, we 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 let the French back in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we sure and, did. Well, you know, we didn't. We didn't want to. It was actually the. I mean, the, the British, were, who were at the time fighting against the collapse of their own colonial empire, wanted to make sure that the 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 old colonists, like the colonialists, like the French, did get back in. I think wasn't the didn't the didn't the British actually ship the French in? Well, I mean, the British certainly were complicit in mm-hmm. in, in aided because they were they were fighting you know wars you know of of you know anti colonial. Um, Against anti, you know, sure, forces Malaya. In, in in Malaya and in, in Burma, Cyprus, and um, and um, you know they they certainly thought the dominoes were going to fall. Mm-hmm. That they were going to be one of the first dominoes to fall if if, if Vietnam went, if French mm-hmm. Indochina went. But you know it, it was you know American war material and war, and it was American diplomatic efforts under the Truman administration that really, you know. Allowed the French to go and, and to get back in there. They need. We wanted France and NATO. Right. Yeah. And that was, that was well, the that was price a big... we were willing to pay to sacrifice South Vietnam. Even though, you know, Ho Chi Minh had written letters to, to the you know U.S. government saying you know he wanted to be friends with us. Yeah. You know. Well, there's a question uh, of how sincere he was Constitution as well. on ours, yeah. or his Declaration of Independence on ours. Yeah. You know, it's just. Yeah. Uh, well, it's it was it's a, a lot of lost opportunities there. Uh, and, and, and a lot of you know forks in the row where we took the wrong ones. So is that but, how is that reflected in your games then? Well, I mean it, it's it's I, I don't know if it's really I, I guess it's again looking for topics that you know haven't received treatment in game form before. Um, you know the, uh, this this game on the Battle of Ambao. Yes, that well, I've oh, just full disclosure, out everybody. Playtesting. Yeah, full disclosure. You know, one of the most ludicrous and crazy battles yeah. of the war. Um, 
in, in just uh, one in, second, in Paul. Full Providence. disclosure: when you when you mention it, I have to say I um, I'm I've got a copy and I'm going to play test and bow. So just so that we we uh, yeah oh yeah <laughs> yeah yeah you've got that yeah Sorry. so it, it, it just it's just an absolutely ins- you know like I said a ludicrous insane battle mm-hmm. and um, uh, tell, it, tell, it, tell it, the listeners a little bit about Anbao. Yeah, uh, it's it, the the, um, oh, the 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 it's in Bindin Province. Anbao is a village just uh, west of three fire bases that the 173rd uh, Airborne Brigade had set up, mm-hmm. and um, the uh, commun- newly deployed. Uh, let me see what the make sure I got my divisions correct here. Hmm. Um, but the a newly deployed uh, NVA division mm-hmm. to the Bin Din had, had gone in, um, the you know the third division, uh, because the Viet Cong force has been devastated during the Tet Offensive, mm-hmm. and um, they took it upon them. You know that one of the missions of the third NVA division was to uh, you know uh, take on some of the, you know some of the U.S. forces there, 133rd Infant, you know Airborne in particular. Mm-hmm. And they, they they attacked it over a series of three days and nights um, until finally they got a response. You know, and uh, uh, the Americans sent out a, uh, a reinforced uh, company with with APCs and uh, heavy weapons, including flamethrower mm-hmm. uh, APC, and and uh, with the air support and artillery support uh, to go. You know drive these people off and um the they had prepared a, a, a regiment-sized ambush in the hills just uh to the west of ambow mm-hmm. and um and the american forces bebop down the road and um some black clad pajama clad nva troops ran across the road into the tree line uh the americans hosed down the uh tree line with fire and then promptly formed into logger positions and took a break. Hmm. Uh, they uh, had not had sleep for three days, and the commander decided he wanted to have his men rested before they really engaged the enemy. And um, uh, that's what they did. Uh, the, the NVA commander was just dumbfounded. You know, here's this American force just camped out right there. And they're not coming into his ambush. And he was got worried that maybe this was going to, they were just going to, you know, maybe just sit there and call in air and artillery strikes um, or maybe just leave. Uh, so he decided to attack. So they come out of their ambush positions, out of the tree lines, and, and engage the Americans in, in um, an open battle out in the open. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a company against the whole regiment. These guys are fighting for their lives. Wow. And wow. In, in a matter of minutes, you know, nine of the 13 U.S. APCs are in flames, including mm-hmm. the flamethrower APC, which goes up into a mushroom cloud. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Americans start calling in artillery and airstrikes. And a uh, troop of tanks, Patton tanks, is not far away. They, they come roaring down the road. Another reinforced company of American soldiers come out. Uh, the battle rages throughout the afternoon. Uh, eventually, the um, they're, they're fighting in, in, in rice paddies, and something happened. One of the dikes, whether no one knows whether it was an errant bomb or, or artillery shell, or it was done deliberately, but mm-hmm. one of the dikes gives way, and the areas start flooding. So 
now the American tanks and APCs that are starting to bog down. So uh, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, they finally order withdraw, get back to the fire bases, and they disengage. Um, we lose scores of men, uh, uh, they, they, well over a dozen armored fighting vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, uh, it's not looking good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the, um, the survivors get back to the fire bases, they hunker down, and the, uh, but the third division commander is so upset that the ambush has, not, has failed, he decides he's going to order all-out assault on these, these fire bases. Okay. And in, in the course of those assaults, he loses more than half of his, of his men in the entire division. Hmm. So, you know, both sides are, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a battle that just kind of, you know, encapsulates their, you know, the futility and, and the wastage of that horrible war. How, so how um, many, how many, what did he, did he attack with the entire division then? Or just yeah, the, yeah. Like, like three <laughs> regiments? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, against orders from Hanoi. I mean, it's, it's, instead of being there, to, you know, to tie up and take on the Americans for, you know, for a long term, mm-hmm. uh, he, he, he loses his control, and just like we lost our control, and it becomes a, a furball that you know nobody wins. Hmm. Interesting. And the, the the war will go on and, and on and on. That was in '68. <laughs> yeah, May fifth, nineteen sixty-eight. Right, so that's right after Tet. Yeah. 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 So, um, so tell me about this. So no, I, since I since I talked that I was going to be playtesting the game, um, that's something I actually would like to talk to you about about the challenges of being, uh, you know, a sort of a a solo, small, independent publisher. The thing that I always notice is that, um, you know, especially when a lot of games these days, I, I find that I get them, especially magazine games and things that seem to be under deadline. And I get them and I start playing them and I realize that there's all these issues with, you know, the rules and the, the balance yeah. and, and some of the mechanics just don't even work the way that they, you know, you think that the designer intended. And, and you would think that... It, they would have noticed this had anybody really set up the game and gone through it systematically. And I feel like maybe somebody didn't. Do you think that that's a, that's a possibility? Yeah, that's an issue. I mean, um, magazines have deadlines and if they don't meet them, subscribers, you know, and advertisers, you know, pull out and then you don't have a bank, you don't have a firm anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and even with the, you know, other established publishers, so many of them have gone to pre-order. Uh, they don't publish anything unless they've already got the money in hand to make it mm-hmm. and even turn a profit before they run the printing presses right. and the die cutters. Um, but that imposes a deadline. And you know, people who pre-order, you know, they get upset if they're, if they're waiting months or even years yes, to get they do. something. Yeah, so, um, so there's a rush to, there's still, there is a rush to publish. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, and for a lot of the pre-order, you know, these publishers, one reason I don't do this and I don't work with these people is that they want the designers to do all of it. They want the designers to design the game. They want them to head up the development, the play testing. They wanted them to do the marketing and the promotion. Mm-hmm. Um, and to the exclusion of anything else, they can't, you know, that's all they can do is that game right. uh, from the time they sign the contract until the time you know it's it's finally released, and then even after release, they're probably under contract for at least a year or so to do any questions and answers. I see. So you're talking being tied up for years 
for something that you may get a thousand dollars for it. <laughs> okay. And you know that that's you know as one person one way once said you know you can get more money making you can make more money collecting beer cans you know aluminum right. cans pop right. cans yeah um, you know with my firm my company there's no deadlines and. We publish when the game's ready, knowing right. until it's ready. Sure. If it takes a year, two years, three years to do it, fine. You know, whatever it is. But you know, it's nice. I've got enough product in the pipeline. You know, I've got other designers and other graphic artists have joined up with us. So, mm-hmm. and other play testers. So, um, you know, I'm, I don't feel any pressure. You know, we've been releasing at least a game a month since we started, but. Mm-hmm. Um, but if that's, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm compelled. I have to release right. a game a month. You know, if I go down to once, one a year, I'll, I'll be happy with that, too. Well, how much do you think they need to be playtested? How much, what, what's, a, what's a good playtest amount for you? Oh, at least a year. Um, how but, many sessions you know, it is depends that? On, it, it depends on, um, uh, on the quality of the playtest reports. Um, you know, some playtesters are better than others. Um, some people who say they want to play test, they'll play test, but you will send them the files, but then that's the last I hear from them. Right. Um, you know, it's, uh, others are really, I've got some really good ones and they, they tear the game apart and put it, you know, they're, they're more than happy to work through everything. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it's, but you know, it's, uh, and some, you know, a lot of the games too, I, I have like four or five, what design templates and, you know, that I know work. Okay. You mean systems, uh, like, to... like mechanical systems? Yeah, right, right. And, you know, my card draw drafting system is, is in, a, in a fair number of these games mm-hmm. now because I know it works. Um, the, the, the system I started with Blood and Steel 20-some years ago, I know that works. Okay. But, you know, there's others, too. But, you know, like the, my Blitzkrieg, you know, my West Blitzkrieg games, um, that's kind of like a classic yeah. Avalon Hill I go, you go type of sure. system that works real well. But that's that's in the Yanks are here, a Battle of Saint Mihail, that's been adapted for that. So uh, I I I know that I have you know in, in many of the games the design I, the basic design mechanics work. Okay. And now we're down to tweaking and making sure that those 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 modifications I made for the history are okay and and will indeed work. Got it. Um, so it, it, it's not a whole lot of heavy lifting. And, and even before I send the game out to play testing, it's already been alpha testing on my end with, with you know, the, the, the friends I have here, um, you know, over the game table. And um, so we, we know it's, it, 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 we know it will at least have a shot at, at being, you know, workable. Sure. I, I, play testers are hard to come by. Yes, they are. And, and I want to give them, I want to make sure the ones I do get have some. When they get it, they know. Oh, this is this looks good. This mm-hmm. this this has some time, energy, and energy and effort and thought and consideration put into it already. Right. This isn't this isn't just a, a kit, and we're hoping that something will come of it. Right. Uh, I really want my playtester feel that you know their time and effort and consideration is going to be in, in a worthwhile endeavor. Okay. Fair enough. Well, tell me that. So if you, you're putting all this effort into the games, tell me some uh, things that are going to be coming out uh, soon from uh, High Flying Dice games that people might want to know about. 
Oh, uh, well, um, we've got um, Bruce has uh, just got the files last week for an undeniable bat vi victory, Operation Fothel Mobin. Okay. It was the uh, first large-scale offensive by the Iranians in the Iran-Iraq War. Oh, interesting. Okay. And it, it, it evicted the Iraqis from the last of the Iranian-occupied territory. Okay. It's a victory that, in many ways, uh, started um, their rise to power that we're still seeing today in you know, now, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with the uh, Iranian forces in 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 Iraq. Okay. And uh, you know, uh, fighting ISIS, and uh, you know, they it made them into the regional power that they are today. It started with that offensive. Hmm. Okay. Um, uh, Operation Father Mubin. What kind of what kind of um, system does that use? Is that using your uh, card draw system? No, no. It's it it actually uses the system I used in my No Middle Ground game that uh, Against the Odds published. Oh, okay. Oh, uh, yeah. I know that. And I know that system. I have that game. That's an interesting game. And that's a game system that I invented back. You know, I started working on back in 1993. Wow. Okay. Um. Yeah. And, and so it's. Uh, I, I think people who like no middle ground, they're going to like un, an undeniable victory. Okay, that's a chip pull, I believe, as I recall. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. Okay. Yep. Great. Uh, what, yep. else is com what else is coming up from you? Anything? Um, uh, we have um, Ilya's working on the whole Stad story, the Battle of West Timor. Okay. On uh, 1942. Uh, that's a card draw activation game. Mm-hmm. And um, that will probably be coming out uh, in August, late July or early August. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Antonio Pinar Pena is uh, working on my Hell in the Holy Land game, uh, First and Second Battles of Gaza, March and April of 1917. Uh, we hope to have that out uh, sometime in July. Um, if not, we'll, we'll do that in August. Um, then uh, Derek will be getting the files uh, probably uh, in a couple of weeks for his next game. Um, that will be on um, uh, 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 the Battle of Kaddish, 1274 BCE, mm -hmm. uh, between the Egyptians and Hittites. And okay. it, it uses a card draw design, too. Um, then um, uh, another game that's been sent off to play testing. Besides the Souls to Waste, which we talked about already, is the Yanks are here, uh, the Kasama Heel campaign. Um, that's uh, that's that's out there, and that has tie-in rules uh, to my Fighting Eagles game, uh, where you can fight out the air battles that are fight being you know uh, taking place on on the Kasama Heel map using the Fighting Eagles game. Oh, that's a, that's a, a World, World War One air combat and World War One ground combat. Yep. Oh, very yep, nice. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, you don't have to, but you, <laughs> if you want to, you can do that. Um, one of my ace playtesters from uh, 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 England, uh, he sent in a really neat report on a sea of fog and fire, the Battle of Heligoland Bight. Oh, okay. Um, that, that was the first major fleet action of World War One between the German and the British fleets. Uh-huh. And um, he also helped with the To Rule the Waves game, the naval battles of the 1880s in the Mediterranean. Um, it's a lot of what the, the, the battle, the, the bombardment of Alexandria is the historical game in that package. Okay. But there's a, a bunch of other what if 
battles in in uh, in there between the various naval powers of the Mediterranean and rules there how you can craft your own. Right. Um, and we'll have we got some other games by Roberto Chiavini. Uh, his game art on the Battle of Arsuf will be um, out later this year. Mm-hmm. And John Tyson's Hot Fight in the Mississippi, the 1862 campaign in Mississippi and Tennessee, that'll be out later this year too. And um, that's a lot of games there, man. Oh yeah, I mean I've it, I've got a lot of product in the pipeline. Uh, um, that for for at least in, you know three years. Okay. <laughs> that we got here. Um, you have adequate playtesters for all those things. Well, that's the that's the that's the that's the rub. I can only you know uh, I need more playtesters. Okay. Um, one right. I'm really looking f- uh, I'm going to be looking for playtesters for here soon is my Wheels of Change game. Um, that's oh, that's the Detroit uh, the, the Detroit uh, car yeah, industry. Yeah, the auto industry of yeah. the 1950s. Yeah. Um, yeah, players take on the roles of the um, the small makes: Packard, uh, Studebaker, Nash, Hudson, uh, Willys, uh, Kaiser, Frazier, mm-hmm. and they try to survive. Okay, well, I like and that. Being from Michigan, I, I appreciate that. Uh, that yeah, I've been traveling back and forth to Detroit over the years. A lot have gone to the uh, Automotive Hall of Fame mm-hmm. and um, done a lot of research. I love old cars. I have a you know, classic car myself, and, my, and I've worked on old cars since I was a teenager. Okay. So th- this kind of combines my love of cars with the love of gaming and history okay. all in one package. Well, so that might be something I'm I have to play test as well. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to need play testers for that. Okay. That's a card game. Yeah. Okay. I'm kind of like I'm, the Timbers Eagles, and but it's a kind of like Monopoly in cards. Uh-huh. And, um, but it, it's 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 um and Bruce is really already tinkering with the graphics. Bruce Arian, right? Yeah. Yeah, Bruce Arian. Mm-hmm. He's real excited about getting this one done okay. too. Well, maybe that'll be something yeah. that I'll uh, that I'll throw in for. But I got I got my hands full with on bow now, so I got I I'm trying to get the <laughs> get the components printed and, and mounted and 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 get a real set that I can play with. So uh, I'll get to work yeah. On I got to get a I got to get a bigger map for you guys to play test yeah, with. Okay. Yeah, I got another team that you know they've already said that the the areas are too small. Yeah, well, I, I agree I, with them. I blew mine up. Uh, I printed it at like. Uh, 300 percent and made a nice big map oh, out of it so oh. i guess my printer can do that so uh, but yeah you, good because well i printed the first one i was like ah, i'm not going to play on this so yeah i agree uh let's uh yeah let's get let's get a bit yeah, i, I took mine to, to the graphic services and, and and had them print one off at the size of what i want mm-hmm. um but it, it's, it's 47 dollars to do that <laughs> it's not cheap it's not good. i yeah. yeah, it's not cheap, but yeah. you know, for play testing, all you know, yeah. it's worth. You, you you do what you need to do. That's where, so. that's, the, that's where the money's worth it. Well, Paul, thank you yeah. so much for for talking to me about all this oh, stuff. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. Really appreciate it, and appreciate uh, I will I will get my exacto knife and my uh, glue stick out and get my on bow put together, and uh, everyone else uh, can uh, find Paul at hfdgames.com. dot uh, com. That's high flying dice games. Paul, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Bruce. Good night. Good night. I've been thinking about negative reviews this summer, especially because I ended up pre-ordering a game from a respectable publisher and designer that turned out to be, well, terrible. Because I like writing about games, I thought about writing a review of this game to talk about why I didn't like it 
and examined some of the design decisions, which I thought were questionable, and which contributed my negative opinion of the game. But I very quickly decided that this was probably a bad idea. The wargaming hobby still seems very much like an industry of friends, and it hardly seems in the spirit of this hobby to make a big public deal about a game you don't like. Is this reasonable? Sure, of course it is. But is it friendlier to just keep your mouth shut? Yeah, except... As some of you may know, I used to write computer game reviews for various websites and magazines, which was kind of a sideline of mine, like 15 or 20 years ago. It actually paid quite well at the time, and earning extra money in medical school was nice, so I did a fair amount of it back then. At that time, the computer gaming hobby seemed very much like a hobby, and people were very enthusiastic about new games when they came out. Being negative toward games seemed a bit unsportsmanlike, you could call it in some quarters. After all, computer games had a negative association already in the general culture, so I add to it by criticizing them, even if a game was bad. It was pretty clear to me then what I was doing was a professional activity, though. I was being paid by a business that had very clear expectations. I would review the game that they sent me so that they could publish my opinion. And the reason for this was that gaming magazines and websites were sort of buyer's guides, let's say the the consumer reports of video entertainment, I guess. And the magazines tried to compete, at least in part, on the basis of reliability. You could trust them to tell you what was worth buying and what wasn't. So my job was to review the game as best I could, offer my considered opinion, and let them print it. Of course, there were other considerations, like advertising dollars, and the whole video game hobby was, and I would argue to some extent still is, an enthusiast hobby, although it's clearly also an industry now, with the principles of the company that developed Red Dead Redemption 2 set to personally take home over $500 million just between the two of them. And that's a long way from being able to call Richard Garrett on the telephone to tell him you finished a Kalabath. A few people are saying that games should be protected from negative opinions just because they would hurt the hobby. Currently, it seems like the reason people give for disliking negative opinions is that it prevents them from psychologically justifying their purchases. Well, I may not say that, but I, I suspect that's what's underlying it. So wargaming is nowhere near this level of cultural acceptance or economic success, and it can't even support a fraction of the advertising or ancillary economic activity that video games have. But I feel we're getting to a point where wargaming could support a higher level of criticism than it does now. And when I say criticism, I don't necessarily mean negative comments. What I mean is critique. I've made the observation before that almost all of the so-called reviews I see of games are simply explanations of the game mechanics, followed by a very brief commentary about whether or not the so-called reviewer liked it, which is limited to loved it, liked it a lot, or liked it. You don't see much, I hated this, because, presumably, why take the time to review a game you don't like? You're not getting paid, although many reviewers are paid in the form of free copies, but we can address that another time. So. For almost all of us who aren't running a YouTube channel as our primary source of income, the time we spend on game reviews is a hobby, and therefore it isn't very enjoyable to spend a lot of time with a game you don't enjoy. Fine. But I do think that given how much pre-ordering goes on in the hobby now, we could stand to have a few more reviews of games that don't live up to their pre-release hype to let others know that maybe they should save their money, or maybe more importantly, their time. And not seeing it. Games are getting released with awful rule sets, misprinted or missing maps and counters, and we're not hearing nearly enough from the community unless we dig our heads into threads on board game geek or console world. Yeah, sure, okay, you need to do research on your purchases, fine. But why are people publicly pulling their punches? And to make this concrete, hopefully without making it offensive or overly critical, uh, I bought a game as a GMTP 500 called Hitler's Reich. 
So I bought it uh, on release and paid for it before I had it. It's designed by Mark McLaughlin, who designed one of my favorite games ever, which is War and Peace, and has some other good designs to his credit, although I think a lot of people like his game The Napoleonic Wars uh, more than I do. That's fine. What I got, I felt, in Hitler's Reich was terrible, and it's one of the very few games I've seen recently where I would get a refund on it if that were at all possible, like it is on Steam. Uh, the rulebook is such a mess that I can't explain how it got that way, especially since I've heard from others that the game has been kicking around in playtest form for years. The gameplay is, in my opinion, repetitive, poorly placed, and unwieldy. It's what I would call a completely broken design, which is something we don't generally see from GMT in the current era. Now, you can disagree with me on that if you want. That's fine. I've seen a lot of posting back and forth on some forums with people swearing by the game's quality and other people disgusted with it. And that's how it is. But then I watched a video review by a couple people, uh, that's Alexander and Grant of the Player's Aid, uh, who I think are very thoughtful and observant about games with good critical faculties and an ability to examine and assess what works and doesn't work about games. I mean, they, they know what they're talking about. And it just so happens that they hit upon many of the criticisms that I had. So now you're saying, oh, Bruce, you're saying they're right because they agree with you. No, not in the least. Um, our analysis of the game seems to coincide, which makes me glad I'm not the only person to find these faults. But that's not actually what struck me about the review at all. But what actually hit me about it was that at the end, they didn't follow up on their criticisms. And furthermore, they soft-pedaled their conclusion as it being a game that needed someone to, I, don't, I think the quote was, sand off the edges to get it refined and that it needed some fine-tuning. Uh, which doesn't in any way correspond to what I thought the body of the review said at all. In fact, I thought the body of the review found a lot of faults that were sort of explained away at the time as, you know, we just didn't get it, um, which is the kiss of death for a game review as far as I'm concerned. If the reviewer doesn't get the game, they need to get it first and then start the review process from there. But I think Alexander and Grant did get the game. That's the thing. I just felt, I don't know, I thought they felt uncomfortable saying outright negative things about it, especially in summation. And I think that's a shame. Um, I'll have the review linked on the podcast page so you can watch it and see if maybe I'm overstating my case. Um, you know, I, I don't plan on making Hitler's Reich any kind of line in the sand as far as my attitude towards game reviews. I'll always approach people's reviews with an open mind. This is just uh, an event that came up, but I, this particular event really made me wonder if we're getting to a point where criticism is either shouted down on message boards or just not offered because of the unwillingness to either offend, to cut off the supply of free games, or just an unwillingness to make a fuss that people aren't going to want to deal with later on social media. And I can understand all those motivations, as well as the motivation that says positivity is more enjoyable than negativity. But I think we're past the point where that's necessary. If you don't mind one more monologue this episode, I thought I'd talk a little bit about something else I've been thinking about recently. When I was a kid, I had a couple friends with whom I played war games, but one of them was my main partner, who basically played everything from Starship Troopers to Panzer Blitz with me. Our heyday was in junior high school, when we battled out on the steppes of Russia, across the Antarctic, over the plains of France, and even into the world of Greyhawk. It wasn't until some years later that I realized that some of the games I remembered most fondly were games I actually hadn't owned. They were his. I was shocked to discover sometime later that I actually didn't own a copy of Starship Troopers. That was my friend's copy. So I eventually rectified that on the secondary market. Another game we played a lot was GDW's Imperium. We were really into Traveler, and liked the idea of playing a board game about the space battles, a lot more than fighting the space battles in the role-playing game, which was a lot more complicated. 
again years later, I realized that I didn't own this one either. So I bought another copy. And when I opened it, I found a bunch of papers from what must have been someone else's campaigns, carefully documented in pencil. I found out that at the start of War Number 2, the Terrans had zero resource units. They owned everything between Agita and Mirabilis. Agita had one planetary defense, one outpost, four regular troops, and two jump troops. Barnard Star had the same, but with just two regular troops plus a scout. The Junction, which was a pretty key place as I recall, had three light cruisers, three missile boats, and two destroyers. And there are pages and pages of this stuff in the box. I know where all of the outposts were at the end of War of the Worlds, end of first campaign. There are carefully filled out index cards with notations like Fourth War, Rick, Terran, versus Dave, Imperialist. The names of the ships are listed, even though Imperium doesn't have named ships. Apparently, these guys just named their ships themselves. At the end of the Fourth War, the fleet at Seoul consisted of the light cruiser Intrepid and the two scouts, Drake and Raleigh. And on this one, there's even a date, 81578. Now, the idea that I was looking at evidence of gameplay almost exactly contemporaneous with my own really gave me a thrill. Before all this geekdom became so cool, simply because tech became the world's main wealth generator, there were still geeks, and we still played games about rocket ships and space marines. Only, we kept it to ourselves, pretty much. Seeing this, I wish I had kept more of my notebooks from my old games with my friends, because while there's nothing that can erase the fun we had, it would be even more fun to look back on some old artifacts that cre we created while having it. That's one of the reasons I love to read AARs online, or after-action reports. These are time capsules that will always convey how much we enjoy this hobby, and seeing other people record their games lets me vicariously enjoy their gameplay. I'd encourage anyone who plays to record some details about each session and share it with someone, not to prove who won or lost, but to share how much fun this stuff actually is. Now, I'm going to get this copy of Imperium on the table soon, and I love that the fact that the copy I have is continuing the wars of some people from my grade school days now 40 years in the future. I doubt that Rick, Dave, or M. Nicholson are listening to this, but if you are, just know that I got a huge kick just out of seeing what kinds of ships you guys once placed at Megiddo. And that's it for this time. Next time, we'll talk about what I think makes for a good Eastern Front game. You all love the Eastern Front, right? I mean, who doesn't? Also, Harold, please do your Twilight Struggle turn. Until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for more Wargaming news, people, and views. This has been Wild Weasel, number 16.